I pray and trust that your Sunday school morning, uh, that the hour of Sunday school was, was a good equipping time for you guys. So glad to be in worship. Listen, as you make your way in, let me draw your attention to a handful of things by way of announcement. Uh, this coming Wednesday, no Wednesday night activities. Kids are out of school. Many of you are traveling. No Wednesday night activities this Wednesday. If you are new uh, to our church family, maybe you've been visiting for a while and you are desiring to know more about our church or, or what it looks like to be a member here, uh, make sure uh, that today and, and then certainly by next Sunday, make sure that you sign up for our next Body Life class. That's our new members class here at Faith Family. There are sign-up sheets on the tables as you make your way out the doors. Uh, you sign up, we'll get in touch with you and give you all the pertinent information, but that will be starting the first Sunday of March, and so we'd love for you to get signed up for that if you have not done so already. Uh, many of you are thinking about praying about uh, this summer's upcoming mission opportunity to Guatemala. Uh, you can continue to sign up for that uh, this Sunday all the way through next Sunday. Sign-up sheets are on the tables. You've been getting emails about that. If you have questions about Guatemala, just ongoing, lingering questions, pull me aside after we worship together this morning. I'd love to answer any questions uh, some of you have even asked about things like financial assistance from the church. So I'll just go ahead and tell you that that will be something that the church is going to be so pleased to be able to offer is just financial assistance to those who are going to be going. So again, if you have questions on all of those things, please let me know. And then the last thing is that uh, next Sunday night at 5 o'clock here in the sanctuary, we'll meet together again for our monthly time of just corporate prayer together as we're thinking about the life as we're thinking about the ministry, as we're thinking about to some degree the future of what the Lord is going to do here at Faith Family. We're gathering together to pray through these times. That's next Sunday at 5, particularly next week. We'll be praying over our children's ministry and the things that we're kind of thinking about and planning toward over the next coming weeks and months here at Faith Family. So I hope to see you next Sunday at 5 o'clock. So a lot going on in the life of our dear body. If you have questions about any of that, let me know. Let me pray for us and we'll get started together this morning. Father, we thank you so much for the gathering of your people. Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day. God, we thank you for all that you have, uh, God, intended for us today. God, all that you're going to give to us today. Father, all that you will teach us from your word. God, all that you will show us about you and ourselves. And God, I pray that as we worship together, Lord God, that we would give you our very best, God, that we would engage you with our complete person, God, that we would unite our, our voices, our hearts together as one body, Father, as we lift up and make much of your great name. Father, we will sing this morning the, the refrain of Hosanna. Father, we join our voices with those we, we recall on the day that Christ entered Jerusalem, in that final week of his life, as they lifted up their Hosannas. God, we join our voices to say with them, O oh God, save now. God, do your saving work, Father, among your people. God, in this particular place, Father, all praise and honor and glory to your name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we open with worship. Praise is rising, 
eyes are turning to you we turn to you hope is stirring hearts are yearning for you we long for you when we see you we find strength to face the day in your presence all our fears are washed away they're washed away hosanna hosanna you are the god who saves us Worthy of all our praises, Hosanna, Hosanna, come have your way among us, we welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Hear the sound of hearts returning to you we turn to you in your kingdom broken lives are made new you make us new when we see you we find strength to face the day in your presence all our fears are washed away they're washed away hosanna hosanna you are the god who saves us worthy of all our praises Hosanna Hosanna come have your way among us we welcome you here Lord Jesus cause when we see we find strength to face the day in your presence all our fears are washed away because when we see you we find strength to face the day in your presence all our fears are washed away they're washed away Hosanna, Hosanna, you are the God who saves us, worthy of all our praises. 
among us. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. and sore Jesus ready stands to save you full of pity love and power I will rise and go to Jesus He will embrace me in His arms arms of my dear Savior, oh, there are ten thousand charms. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty. Bye. 
arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. And oh, there are ten thousand charms. What a fitting prelude to Hebrews chapter 4. Our scripture reading this morning, would you join me there? Hebrews chapter 4, remain standing with me if you can for the reading of God's Word. We ended last week at the end of chapter 3 with a warning that went out to these people to not walk away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the warning is this, if you do, you will not enter into His rest. You will not enter into this eternal rest from your sin. You will not receive the free offer of grace and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in chapter 4, we're reminded together of that rest that is promised to us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as He does, in fact, by His grace, take us into His arms, and as we find our rest in Him. Hebrews chapter 4, and we pray as we read that God would take this eternal truth and write this upon our hearts. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed entered that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, And God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed 
through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Beloved, would you be seated? And as you do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Father, in and of ourselves, left to ourselves, we are weak and wounded. We are sick and sore. Father, left to ourselves, we remain in the darkness of sin and death. Father, left to ourselves, we will weary ourselves trying to make ourselves right with You. We will turn over every new leaf. We will try every new passing philosophy. And we will give ourselves to everything that calls itself religion in an effort to make ourselves right with You. Father, because of our sinfulness, because of our rebellion, God, You would be completely just. Father, to leave us in that rebellion. God, You would be completely holy to punish us for all eternity because of that sinful rebellion. Father, You are also a God of great grace. You are a God of unfathomable mercy because in our sinful dead state God you came to us you sent your son for us while we were yet your enemies while we were yet dead in our trespasses God Christ came he came lived and He satisfied the law's demands and He died as our substitute. He rose again. And Father, rest is found in Christ alone. Our rest from our sin, our rest from our wearying labor that seeks to make ourselves right with You. God, our rest is in Christ. So God, I pray this morning for those in the room that don't know Christ. They might even sing songs about Him this morning. They might have a general good feeling about Him, but they are not in Christ. Not turned from their sins. They've not come to saving faith in Him. Oh God, would You settle upon their lives, upon their hearts. God, the weightiness of their condition before You without Christ. And O God, would You settle upon their hearts almost simultaneously, Lord, the freedom that comes by finding their rest in Christ. Father, I pray for the believer this morning. 
God, that they have wrongly believed, maybe even over this past week, that they have to check all the boxes and do all the things to be acceptable to you. Oh God, remind them that they are not acceptable to you because of them, but they are acceptable to you because of Christ. And Father, may we find the final verse of chapter 4 to be such a balm for our souls this morning. That God, you are not disappointed in us. You are not exasperated by us. Father, you beckon us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. We, we, we do that, God, knowing that we, we don't just sashay into your presence, God, on, on our own accord, but we do it through Christ. But because Christ has come, because we are in him, oh God, help us to run to you this day. So God, do your work in the hearts of your people. Father, your word is our authority. Your word, as we have read this morning, it is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. God, your word does the work. So, Father, we rest upon the truth and the authority of your holy word. God, correct us by your word. Encourage us by your word. Convict us by your word. Save now, O God, by your word. And so as we sing in response to you, God, to your word, oh, Father, I pray that you would, God, help us to understand more and more the reality of who you are, the reality of our own selves, and God, that in that, that we might understand more about the blazing brilliance of the gospel and its work in us and among us. I thank you for this day. Thank you for this moment. We ask and pray all these things in Christ's great name. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we continue in worship.
until I stand with joy before the sit down if you wish. What a fitting song for this verse that we've been memorizing. This one thing that we hold, that it is only in Christ that we hope. So we're in Jeremiah 17, 7. We are memorizing this one very brief verse, and so if you would, twice, let's recite it out loud, and then we'll look at something, pray, and continue in worship. So if you would follow with me. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 7. More time. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 7. So we have entrance and existence. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, that we must trust Him and also trust Him throughout our life. That this this passage that, that we've looked at weeks ago about the curse of trust in self and that how blessing, the blessed life, the blessed reality it is to trust in the Lord, that He is our trust. That this is foundational for how we should look at the world and how we should look at ourselves. That I don't know if we appreciate the changes of the last few hundred years in, in how self-trusting and self-focused our culture is and how we often think of ourselves. I know I do. No one has to tell me to trust myself. And yet, the author here and God through Jeremiah is telling us that the heart is deceitful above all things, that trust in ourselves alone and foundationally is a lost hope. It is as if a partridge that gathers or brood that does not hatch has gathered someone else's eggs and is sitting on them in vain. 
we must trust in the one name that is appointed above all others that we will be saved in Christ and in Him alone. He is the one we should trust. Trust initially and trust for our whole lives. So that is our hope here at Faith Family. That is our hope with the elders. That is my hope that we all in here and anyone listening will find Christ trustworthy and trust Him with all of your life. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You. I thank You, Lord, that You are trustworthy. That we look at Your Word from beginning to end and that You keep Your promises that You have covenanted with humanity. While we were enemies, You sent Your Son to die on our behalf. That we have hope because You have given it. We have hope because You have extended it. We have life because You preserve it. And so, Father, from beginning to end, Lord, whatever good we have in life is dependent upon You. And so, Father, we thank You. We thank You for the good days and life You've given us and the grace You have provided through Your Son, Jesus, that He has stood in our place. God, may that be true of each one of these people here. That we would find in You the hope that You truly offer and give. That we would find the atonement of the cross on our behalf. God, help us to trust in You. There is no better hope. There is no better person to trust in lord may we truly trust in you may we forsake sin and self forsake depending upon ourselves for hope depending upon other people for hope depending upon our 401ks for hope depending upon what what future and what we can we can meet out of what we see and what we're told for hope may we trust in you and in you alone lord God, would you help us? God, would you help us this morning? May we see you as you truly are. As glorious and good and kind and long-suffering and faithful as you are. As you were to Abraham. As you split sacrifices, you walk through them in display of your faithful promise that you would do as you said. And Abraham simply received. God, we thank you and ask your help this morning that we would see you as you truly are, as gracious and kind and as glorious as you are, and that, God, we would trust fully in you. In Jesus' holy, precious name, pray. Amen. And church family, would you take God's word and join me in Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Matthew Chapter 4, as we continue our study through Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 4 this morning, verses 12 to 17, Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17. So far in the study through Matthew's Gospel, we have seen that Jesus is the very Son of God who has come to save His people from their sins. Joseph, the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, which means God is salvation because he will save. He will not merely make something possible, he will actually accomplish something. 
Don't give me a Savior who may or may not be able to accomplish something. Give me one who actually does what it is that God has sent him to do, and such we have in Christ. He has come and he has saved his people from their sins. Most recently in Matthew's Gospel, we have seen that in his baptism and in his wilderness temptation, Jesus has revealed that he is As we just sang together a moment ago, the better Adam who has come to fully identify with his people so that he might then be a merciful and faithful high priest to them. You recall that in his earliest months, God went to great lengths to preserve the life of his son Jesus. So that Jesus, in the last three years of his life, would be able to accomplish the very purpose for which he came, the deliverance and the salvation of his chosen precious bride. When you get to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, you come to a turning point in Matthew's gospel. We have seen of Uh, aspects of his birth. We have seen just some very brief glimpses into his early life. We have seen uh, a, a glimpse into his preparation for ministry as we have seen the baptism and the wilderness temptation. But now as we come to chapter 4 and verse 12, we come to this turning point where we are going to turn and focus in on the life, the ministry, the teaching of Christ. We come to essentially the main body, if you will, of Matthew's gospel account. There have been some 30 years of obscurity in Nazareth. We, we know very, very, very little about the moments between Jesus' birth and when his public ministry begins. Some 30 years of obscurity, though, are now over. And the long-promised, the long-awaited Messiah now steps into the spotlight, if you will. Christ has come. As we'll see this morning, His kingdom has been inaugurated. It has begun, if you will, it has been first displayed or shown at His birth, will come to full fruition when He comes again. But we understand Christ best when we understand Him as a King over His kingdom. So the King has come, the kingdom has been inaugurated, and now we're about to find out what is the King, what is He like? What is his kingdom like? What about those who would be a part of this kingdom? What are they like? What are their lives going to look like? We come face to face with Christ. We come face to face with what it is that he came to do. How it is that he came to interact with his people for whom he came to save. And so as you turn to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, the next three Three and a half years or so of Jesus' life and ministry are now before you in the Scriptures. It's going to be a very brief three, three and a half years of life and ministry here. Jim Elliott, the well-known missionary to the uh, 
Aka Indians of Ecuador, said this upon reflecting on the brevity of Christ's life. He would say this, that I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. I seek not a long life, Elliot would say, but I, I seek a full life like you, Lord Jesus. As you come to Matthew 4.12, we begin to see the fullness of Christ's life on display. But not just that, beloved. We also begin to see what it is and how it is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of this glorious kingdom, calls us, the inhabitants of that kingdom, how it is that He calls us to live. And so church is those who have been graciously redeemed by the blood of our great King and Savior. Our greatest desire should be to mirror the fullness of Christ's life and ministry. To mirror, to show, to display His character. And to be intimately involved in kingdom advancing ministry. The text before us begins to reveal the very earliest days of Jesus' ministry. And as we look at these together, my prayer for us is that we would be so delighted in Christ, that we would be so thankful for Christ, that we would gladly, that we would joyfully seek to shine the light of the Gospel into the darkness around us, and that we would fully give ourselves to God-exalting Christ exalting, kingdom-advancing ministry. I want us to look together this morning in verses 12-17 to of chapter 4. And I want us to see here two realities, two realities from Jesus' earthly ministry. At least the very outset of His ministry. These two realities or revelations from Jesus' earthly ministry. Ministry. Look at the text with me starting in verse 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Two revelations or realities from Jesus' earthly ministry. Number one, very simply for us, the light has entered the darkness. As we see the outset of Jesus' ministry, what we're seeing in verses 12 down to 16 is that light has entered the darkness. Pick back up in verse 12 with me. When Jesus heard that John, this is speaking of John the Baptist, that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, some 
some year or so, roughly about a year has passed since the end of the wilderness temptations and this moment in verse 12 where we are told that John the Baptist has been arrested. He has been arrested by Herod Antipas. Now, before that time, John is still out in that Judean wilderness. He is proclaiming the message that as essentially the the last Old Testament prophet that he has been given by God to proclaim to the people. So, So there will be a season where the ministries of John and Jesus will sort of overlap one another, but there comes a point, and we're hearing of that in verse 12, that John is arrested. It's a very tumultuous time. It's a very troubling time. It is a very dark time in the land of Israel in these days. It's dark politically, but maybe even more so, it is dark spiritually. There is a darkness over the land. The Jewish ruling body, the Sanhedrin, along with Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews, they have been very corrupt in their dealings with Rome. The great Roman Empire overshadows essentially all of the known world, particularly here in Israel. And these religious leaders, King Herod, they have come alongside of Rome, and Rome has given them certain favors. Rome has given them certain allowances. Rome has given them certain privileges for a price. And so they are corrupt, essentially, in their dealings with Rome, but Rome kind of lets them do their thing just so long as they don't get too much out of line. And so the Sanhedrin, Herod, they are in so many ways a, a political force among the people there. But there's a greater problem at work here, and it's that of just spiritual abuses and spiritual darkness that's overshadowing the land. Uh, These abuses uh, against the Jewish people by their religious leaders. These religious leaders are marked by sin. They're marked by unrepentance of sin. They're corrupt. They're perverse. They place burdens on people as Jesus will later tell them. And they don't even lift a finger to help remove those burdens from them. Some of Jesus' most harsh words will be for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of that day because of their hypocrisy, because of the way that they will abuse the people entrusted to their care. And it's in the midst of that that John is out there in the wilderness looking at the Pharisees and the religious leaders that come to them. And you remember what he says to them? Hey, you brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come, right? Repent. Repent. Keep repenting and keep bearing fruit in keeping with that repentance. So it was 2,000 years ago, and so it is today. That message is not very palatable. That doesn't taste very good. It doesn't slide down real nice and smooth, but it is the message of the Word of God. You are in sin. You run contrary to God, His law, and His holiness, and you must turn away from it. In particular, John hones in on King Herod at some point during this year in between the wilderness temptations in verse 12. Herod Antipas, the Herod of the day, and you can read of this in Matthew 14, verses 3-12. to He's a very sinful, very corrupt man. And John confronts him 
Because as the Scripture will tell us, Herod had his brother's wife. John calls him on this. He said it is not right. It is in fact unlawful. And he calls Herod out for this. And as you can imagine, it didn't go very well. Herod is enraged. You recall that he has John arrested as we read there in verse 12. And then you recall the rest of the story tells us that one night at a party, he had John beheaded at the request of his niece. After Jesus hears in verse 12 of John's arrest, we read in verse 12 that he leaves the southern region of Judah and he goes back north, kind of back home essentially, to the northern regions of Galilee. He doesn't withdraw, by the way, because he's afraid of Herod. In fact, John chapter 4 and verse 1 tells us that Jesus actually withdraws to get away from the Pharisees. And it's not because he's scared of them either, but there is a showdown coming with these guys, but not yet. Not yet. We're going to let that sort of happen naturally. Jesus is not going to confront them yet. So he goes north into the region of Galilee to get away from them. Verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So goes back and essentially does what? He goes back home. Joseph from Nazareth. They go back to Nazareth after that uh, kind of flight into Egypt. You recall they go back to Nazareth. We don't know a lot about Jesus' life there. We, we can assume that he grew up there, that he learned there, maybe even took on uh, the, the trade of his father as a carpenter. At any rate, in verse 13, he goes back to Nazareth. If you read over in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 31, this doesn't go very well. He shows up back in town and on the Sabbath day goes into the local synagogue there. He opens up the Scriptures, reads a portion of Scripture, and begins to teach. And as he is teaching there, he's speaking to them about their rejection of God's prophets and that as a result of that, God is going to send His prophets to the Gentiles, to the nations. And when they hear that, that is just that is way too much for them. And so they become enraged. They lay their hands on Jesus. They drag him out to the edge of town. And they're about to throw him off a cliff. You can't ever really go back home again, right? They go to throw him off a cliff. Scripture tells us that he disappears from their midst. It's not time to die yet, and definitely not in this way. So then verse 13 tells us that he goes where? He goes to Capernaum. He goes to the fishing, the, by this time, a, a very well-known fishing town on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum is going to be Jesus' home base if you will, over the next year and a half while he is doing ministry in these northern regions of Galilee. In fact, Mark chapter 2 and verse 1 tells us that it becomes his home. And so as Jesus, he'll go out, they'll be preaching and teaching, and then the idea would be that maybe in times of rest he would come back to Capernaum and, and it would act as a sort of home base for them. Verse 13, this is not going to be insignificant. We'll see why in a moment. We read in verse 13 that Capernaum is in the region 
of Zebulun and Naphtali. And you might recall from your Old Testament reading and study that Zebulun and Naphtali were sons of Jacob. They comprised two of the twelve tribes of Israel. You might recall that when God's people, after their 40 years of desert wandering, when they got ready to come into the land, portions of the land would be allotted to each of the 12 tribes. Zebulun and Naphtali were given these portions of land up in northern Canaan, which by New Testament times is going to be called Galilee. Zebulun would settle on the southwest side of the sea. Nazareth, by the way, is in the land of Zebulun. Naphtali, on the other hand, would settle on the northwest side of the sea. And Capernaum is in that region of Naphtali. Jesus goes home. They try to kill him, so he leaves and goes to Capernaum in the land here of Zebulun and Naphtali. That is not an insignificant statement, by the way. Look to verse 14. Why did Jesus land there? Could have gone anywhere. Why not just in Jerusalem? I mean, sure, there were probably going to be enemies there, but, but that's where the temple is, right? If, if the Son of God would be anywhere, we might would expect Him to be Jerusalem, the holy city where the presence of God dwells among His people, but not So he goes to the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, verse 14, to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Beloved, get the idea of chance or coincidence completely out of your vocabulary. There's absolutely no such thing, right? Jesus going back to live in Capernaum is not just some random, oh, this looks like a nice place, I think we'll hang out here. This is by God's decree. It is by God's design. And for centuries upon centuries upon centuries, it has been prophesied that the Messiah would dwell in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so then Matthew in verse 15, he begins to quote from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, I need you to hang with me for just a moment here. A little bit of history. So if you're a history nerd, you're right with me. If you hate history, just be patient, all right? This is all coming to a great head in verse 16. This ancient prophecy about Zebulun and Naphtali, these two places, through the prophet Isaiah, God marks them out as not insignificant. In fact, as we'll see Very significant. They are both, as verse 15 says, they are both by the way of the sea. Meaning, they're by a very prominent highway called the Via Maris. It was a prominent trade route that ran from the Mediterranean over here all the way to points east. And that road ran through these regions. In verse 15, these regions are both called Galilee of the Gentiles. So, history nerds unite, all right? In 722 BC, a guy by the name of Tiglath Pileser, if you're looking to name a child something in the future, I just commend that to you. This Assyrian king comes into the northern regions of Israel and completely decimates the place and takes captives away from these lands 
takes them to Assyria. But then what would happen is that over the next seven centuries or so, Assyrians would come back into that land. Other nationalities would come back into that land and they would settle into this region, making it a very Gentile, not Jewish, demographic. As a result of this, the Jews down in the southern region of Israel, down in Judah where Bethlehem was and where Jerusalem was, they would grow to despise the land of Galilee in the north. There's Gentiles living there. This is our land. This is the land that God promised to his chosen people through Abraham. Why are these Gentiles here? Why are those Samaritans, those mixed breed people, why are they there? They would look upon this land with derision and scorn. They would even think about the, the, the Jews that live there as a second-rate class of Jews. The, the real Jews, the, the really holy ones, the really godly ones, everybody knows where they live, right? They live around, around Judah. They live around Jerusalem here, not up there in Galilee among those Gentiles. Do you see the picture that's being painted in verse 15? These lands... And in particular, the people dwelling in these lands had known, essentially throughout all of their history, they had known suffering. That they had known what Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1 would describe as gloom and anguish and despair. Some of you in the room have resonated with that at seasons of your own life. Hard, suffering, dark, gloomy, despairing. This land had known hopelessness, darkness. And that's what makes verse 16 so beautiful. Because to that land, to those people, verse 16 says what? The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them, a light dawned. Suffering, anguish, destruction, derision, scorn, gloom, hopelessness, despair. Does God even see? Does he even know? Does he even care? And God's answer to them in verse 16 is what? I see you. I care about you. My eye is upon you. And what a sweet kindness of God that to these people who had known so much hopelessness, to them first comes the light of the world in Jesus Christ. They are not forgotten. Hope dawns upon them. Even in their darkness, God sees them. God loves, by the way, He loves to send light into the darkness. How do we know that that's true? Because that's the story of the Gospel, beloved. That Jesus comes into our 
darkness to save his people from their sins. God loves to send light into the darkness. So what does he do in verse 16? He gave them the light. He sent them Jesus. John chapter 8 and verse 12. You remember what Jesus would say about himself there? I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And they shall have the light of life, because as John chapter 1 and verse 4 says, in him Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. Light has come now into the darkness. And do you notice in verse 16, look at it again. Notice the contrast, and Scripture does this so often, contrast here between darkness and light. To the beginning of verse 16, those in darkness saw great light. End of verse 16, sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them light has dawned. All throughout Scripture. Beginning, by the way, in creation. God begins to make distinctions between darkness and light. And as you make your way through the rest of Scripture, you find very quickly, very early, that darkness so often represents what? It represents sin because sin is darkness. It's the epitome of darkness. Sin is spiritual blindness and being perpetually in sinful darkness unable to see. On the other hand, light represents what? It represents life and salvation because as 1 John 1.5 says, God is light. And in Him, there's no darkness at all. Beloved, what a sweet kindness of God that He would first send the ministry of the light of the world into a place that had known such darkness and suffering. God loves to light up the darkness with the glorious light of His Son. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. The great light encountered the great darkness. The far off ones were visited by Him who gathers together the outcast of Israel. Our Lord courts not those who glory in their light, but those who pine in their darkness. He comes with heavenly life, not to those who boast of their own life and energy, but to those who are under condemnation and who feel the shades of death, shutting them out from light and hope. And into that darkness, God loves to send the light of Christ. Church, light has entered the darkness. Christ has come. And this just begins to force several questions to mind in our hearts. Number one, most notably, we must ask, have you come to the light who is Christ Jesus? Have you, sitting in the pew today, have you come to the light who is Christ Jesus? Do you recognize your darkness? Do you recognize what your sin has done and is doing to you? Do you feel the crushing condemnation of that darkness? I'm, I'm reminded 
you recall one of the plagues of Egypt was that of darkness. Remember that? And at the beginning of that plague, when God tells Moses, I'm going to send darkness, he says about it, it is a darkness which might be felt. That's dark, guys. Right? A darkness that is so thick and so void of any hint of light that you can feel that kind of darkness. Beloved, that is the reality of sin's darkness upon our lives. It is a darkness that maybe we don't always admit it, but it is a darkness that we feel. It's weight of condemnation and guilt upon our shoulders. And the call of Scripture is what? God saying to you, I have sent light into the darkness. Come to the light. Don't remain in darkness and hopelessness and despair and gloom. Come to my Son, Jesus. Even for those, by the way, who, again, maybe you wouldn't say this out loud, but this call even goes out to those who love their darkness. That they love their sin. They, they love to kind of shelter it and harbor it and, and try to keep it safe. John chapter 3, verse 19 says this, that this is the judgment. That the light is coming to the world and men loved darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil. I mean, listen, you play around with your sin long enough. You stroke it along long enough. You leave it unconfessed and unrepented of long enough and you will learn to love it. And it may be that you find yourself dangerously in that place even this morning. Where you're beginning to lie to cover it up and to protect it and you can't wait to get back to it. Oh, dear friend, come to the glorious light of Jesus Christ and be freed from that crushing hopelessness and darkness. Do not grope around in the darkness any longer. Listen, if there's no light, if the light has not come, then just keep trying to do the best you can, All right. But the reality is light has come. Shown into the darkness. Come to this light. There is no other light, by the way. There won't be another light. This is it. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Christ. How do we get out of the darkness? How does, how does light shine upon the darkness of our soul? Only through Jesus Christ. Christ came to open your blind eyes. As you make your way through Matthew's Gospel, you're going to see Jesus healing blind people. What a sweet kindness that he would heal that physical blindness. Sometimes those people are blind from birth. For decades they've been in darkness. But you know what the bigger reality is? You know what the greater point of that is? 
that Jesus didn't merely come to open your physical eyes. He came to open your spiritual eyes. Oh, dear friend, turn to Christ today. He is the light of the world. Church, Christian, are you, if you are in Christ, and if you're a Christian, you, you are in Christ, you are in the light. Ephesians 5.8 tells you, church, that you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Can I encourage us with something in, in light of this? The end of Ephesians 5.8 calls us to walk as children of light. Jesus did not come to open your spiritually dead eyes and to take you out of darkness into light so that you might just then run back to the darkness again. He came to awaken you so that you perpetually live in the light. And so then, we walk, Ephesians 5.8, as children of light. That means we go about our lives in all that we say, in all that we do, all that we think, walking in the light. If the light of the gospel has shone into your heart and awakened you out of the dark death of your sin, walk as children of light. Be who you are in Christ. Do not go back to the darkness again. Honor God with your life. Walk in obedience and faithfulness to all that God has called you to be and do as inhabitants of His kingdom. By the way, in like a year from now, when we get to Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, when we get there, Jesus is going to be saying in these three chapters, this is what the inhabitants of the kingdom look like. If you are in the light, if you are a part of the kingdom, then here's practically how that's going to flesh itself out in your life day in and day out. Church, you're in the light. Keep putting to death the deeds of the darkness. Always be turning to, running to the light. Secondly, church, can I encourage us in this as well? If you are in the light, then there is a sacred call upon your life to help bring others into that light with you. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Church, if you've been brought into the light, all praise and honor and glory to Him. If you've been brought into the light, walk as children of light? Church, if you've been brought into the light, there is a sacred call upon your life to help bring others into that light with you. First Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that... I want you to watch this. The verse does not end with, you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, period. That's not how that verse stops, nor is it the end of Peter's thought. Watch this. You are these things so that. Here's why 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Do you see the call on our lives, church? You're saved not merely to escape the wrath of God in hell, but you are saved and now a sacred call is upon your life to proclaim the excellencies of God and who He is and what He has done through the light of the world, His Son. 4, verse 10. Remember this. You once were not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Beloved, if you've been brought to the light, if you once were blind, but now you see, don't you want to see others come into that marvelous light? And so we go and we serve and we give and we teach. We use our giftings for the building up of the church and for the evangelism of the gospel. Remember what Jesus would say in Matthew 5:16 after telling them that they are the light of the world, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Church light has entered the darkness. Are you walking in that light? Are you calling others into that light? Second revelation from Jesus earthly ministry verse 17 is that the kingdom has come. Verse 17, the kingdom has come. This is a reality that, as we'll see, also demands a response. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You ever wonder what it must have been like to hear the Word of God preach the Word of God? I bet that came with power, conviction. Jesus was a preacher. In fact, He was the preacher. The consummate preacher. He is the Word of God. Heralding now forth the Word of God. Can I just briefly pause and say this? That if Jesus came preaching, and if the focal point of His ministry was preaching, why do we think we can do anything different with our ministries today? Why do we think that it would be alright for preaching, for weak preaching, for man-centered preaching, Instead of God-honoring, Christ-exalting preaching, why do we think that would be acceptable if the heartbeat of Jesus' ministry was preaching, proclaiming, 
There is no ministry, no salvation, no spiritual awakening without preaching and proclamation of the Word of God. So Jesus comes preaching. He's not here to put on a show. There will be miracles to be sure. The dead will be raised to life. Blind will see. Lame will leap. and They'll take up their mats and they'll walk. Praise God for His kindness and compassion to those people. But Jesus didn't come just to do some cool tricks. He came to preach. He came to proclaim the Word of God. A.C. Ryle said this, that the brightest days of the church have been those when preaching has been honored. The darkest days of the church have been those when it has been lightly esteemed. You want awakening? You want revival? Preach the Word. And when Jesus came preaching, what did He say in verse 17? This is fascinating. The eternal Word of of God, when He comes preaching, He does not say anything new. He says something very, very old. And He says something which should be extremely familiar to you. Because back in chapter 3, it's the same theme of John the Baptist preaching. What is it? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same message from John or from Matthew from John in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. Church, the message never changes. The preacher might change. The location, the audience, the times may change. But the message never changes. If the Lord tarries 50 years from now, the message is still the same. If the Lord tarries for another 200 years, a thousand years, the message will still be the same. Turn from your sin and come to Christ. Repent. Jesus did not come to make us a better version of ourselves. Jesus cares nothing about our best life. He cares about our soul and the fact that it is bound and racked by sin. And the only way to be free from that is to turn away from it and turn to Christ. That's what repent means. We saw this back in chapter 3. It's a change of mind about our sin that leads to a change of life. A change of habit. A change of direction. You heard me say that repentance has feet to it. It's not, just a mere, it's not merely an idea to which we assent. It's actually something that we do. As we become convinced from God's Word about the deadly nature of sin, we learn to hate it. We'll confess it to God and then we will walk away from it toward righteousness in Christ. If you would come to Christ today, if you would be saved today, dear friend, you must repent. You must repent. That is what you must do. 
as God comes and graciously stirs your heart. Helps you to understand who He is. That Christ is your only hope. You must repent. For, verse 17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The King has come. So therefore, repent. The kingdom is is here. It's inaugurated at the birth of Christ. It will be brought to fruition at the return of Christ. Where He will come, where He will take unto the new heaven and new earth all of the redeemed. And they will be a part of this eternal kingdom to rule and to reign with Him for all eternity. If the King has come, that means the kingdom is at hand. And if the King has come, and if the kingdom is at hand, that demands a response from every single individual. We're we're not big in the United States of America on monarchies, in case you haven't picked up on that over the last 250 years or so. Um, However, however, if we're... We're gathered together, sitting around somewhere, just hanging out, and you know the King of England walked in the room. Uh, maybe you don't care a, a, a whip, really, about the monarchy, but that would not be an insignificant moment for the king to walk into your midst. You would at least be a little curious. And I, I think it is doubtful that we would just ho-hum and turn our backs on him and carry on with our conversation The king has come. The greater king. The king of kings. The Lord of lords has come. You must turn. You must come to him in faith. The call is then to honor the king, O church, with your life. Secondly, that the kingdom, in verse 17, is at hand. It means that not only has the king come one time, but that the king is coming a second time. And when he comes the second time, he's not coming as a helpless baby in a manger. He's coming with a sword in his hand. He's coming to make war. He's coming to mete out holy justice upon all sin and unrepentant sinners. Does that not, church, demand a response from us? We must go and we must tell and we must serve and we must preach and we must teach and we must give so that people can be called out of darkness into this marvelous light. Are you living your daily life under the reality that the kingdom has come and is coming? Are you living your life and spending your effort and energy to point people to King Jesus? As we see the beginning of His ministry, light is shattering the darkness. And the King has finally come. Prepare the way of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning.
Father, there is much to consider. There is much to respond to here. So God, would you, by the work of your omnipotent Spirit, God, would you move and work in the hearts of your, your people? God, would you move and work in the hearts of those that do not know Christ? Light, the King of light has come. No, God, we must give him our attention, our devotion, our lives. So, God, you do in us what you will for your glory and the advancement, God, of your great kingdom. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together.